Hugh, welcome to our improvised studio. Folks may hear a little bit of an echo because, well, let's just say we make do with our one glass wall and a couple of two shiny surfaces that uh, get, you know, bounce the sound back. So apologies, folks, but we're in for a wonderful conversation with my guest, I like to call my conversation partner, Hugh McElyay. And uh, I'm hoping that our uh, brilliant engineer can um, give us a little bit later, a little bit of the product of Hugh's heart, head, and hands uh, in the uh, piece of music uh, that we'll discuss uh, as we roll along here. But uh, Hugh, thank you for making the effort to come by our office here in Washington, D.C. Uh, let's talk a little bit first about you, uh, the folks who are listening in. I call our family, our podcast family. And I always explain, this is like a kitchen table conversation. We open the windows and we let them eavesdrop. So, Let's uh, help them to get to know you a little bit. Um, you're a composer. Uh, I believe you're a musician. Pianist, mm -hmm. yeah. And uh, you probably weren't born those things. Mm -hmm. You acquired uh, those skills. No doubt you have innate talent, but let's talk about your origins. Where, where did it all begin for you? Thank you, Rob. It's, it's an honor to be here. And uh, my beginnings were in Central Florida. My father was a citrus farmer in Lake County, Florida. And uh, he, as uh, most parents during that time, would bring in a piano for the children. That was traditional. I had an older sister that was going to take piano lessons. And as soon as the piano got in the house, I pushed her off the bench and started hogging the piano for myself. Mm -hmm. But um, yes, it, it was a uh, traditional Central Florida upbringing, meaning that it was a very racist culture. I see. And so that was the beginning of my life in a very racist culture. Mm -hmm. And I remained in that culture until I went to Florida State University. And when I got to Florida State University, uh, it was a time in the 60s when the Civil Rights Movement was beginning to heat up on Southern campuses. I don't mean to date you, but yeah. what years in particular? This would be around 1965. Oh yeah, sure, the height right. of the movement. And so I came from Central Florida to Tallahassee, which was a bubble of academia, you know, and beginning to witness the uh, the activities that were going on for civil rights, I uh, began to become conscious of my of my legacy of racism, generational mm -hmm. racism. It happened that I moved into the Canterbury House, which is an Episcopal off-campus men's housing. Can Were you Episcopal? Uh, no, I wasn't at the time. I was no. actually Presbyterian. Presbyterian? Okay. <laughs> and so I uh, joined the Episcopal Church and lived in Canterbury House. And on Monday nights, we were required to uh, 
have a roundtable discussion on a two-page handout. One of the early two-page handouts was on the life of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. So my first exposure to Dietrich Bonhoeffer was in 1965. If you jump... If we just put that in reference, you know, uh, 20 years after his death. So pretty close. So there's a lot of biographical information that I could go through. I left Florida State University and was commissioned into the U.S. Air Force for four years. Hmm. After four years in the Air Force, I took what I call the sabbatical and went to a little restored barn in northwestern Connecticut to get the Air Force out of my system. I see. And then I met my piano professor in Connecticut who found me a job in New York City. And I moved to New York and worked for a music publisher there. And now what time frame are we in? Uh, this was in 1970. Hmm. So how, how does this Central Florida uh, young man take resettlement in New York? How did you find the experience? Well, a lot of Southern kids love, love to move. I suppose. I had the youth, but not the money. And so I worked <laughs> to pay tough. the rent. And back in the 70s, New York was a pretty rough place because I yep. lived in Washington Heights. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. So after a couple of years with the music publisher, I was hired to manage the Festival of Two Worlds in Spoleto, Italy. So I changed jobs, spent two summers in Spoleto, and got got, uh, into the whole culture in a deeper way than just music publishing. When when you were in New York, if I can take you back there for a minute, were you conscious at all of Bonhoeffer's no. history in New York? No. No. So you weren't aware of Union or no. Abyssinian Baptist in Harlem? Yeah. There was a 30-year spread between when I first was introduced to Dietrich Bonhoeffer mm. and when I finally came in touch with him again. And that continues the, the years in New York, which added up to 40 years in New York. I see. Um, so during that time, I a friend of mine who was the the widow of the head of the New York City Opera invited me to Riverside Church Ah. for a Monday, Thursday tenebrae service. Mm. Never went to a tenebrae service, didn't know anything about it, but it was a one of the most powerful experiences that I had because at the end of the candlelights being, the candle being put out, there was uh, a black man in the balcony singing, Were You There? Oh. When they crucified my Lord. Oh, you're the giving me goosebumps just thinking about it. The was sobbing. Hmm. And it, I walked out of that uh, spiritually changed, but also as a composer. Hmm. And so I started thinking about this fourth century monastic service and how that could be placed in a contemporary setting and hold on to its power. Hmm. A friend of mine, an elder friend of mine, who was at uh, Union Theological Seminary, had had her master's degree, and she had done a paper on Mary Magdalene. And so I be- was a friend, and we, I began to discuss with her, what if I were to do, tell the story of the passion of Jesus through the eyes of Mary Magdalene? And, but in that course of that conversation, she happened to mention that there's a room dedicated 
to teach Ruth Bonhoeffer at Union. And she said, she looked at me and she said, everything stopped. And what had stopped was I had connected the Tenebrae service to the story of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Mm -hmm. And so I placed the passion in cell 92 of Tegel Prison and began to develop the story, did three years of research, started out with Eberhard Bethke's biography, read Letters standard. from Prison, and then in the early 90s there was a book called Love Letters from Cell 92. Mm. That introduced me to Maria von Wedemeyer. Mm -hmm. So I began to imagine this a two platforms, one the cell and one the, the Berlin apartment of, of Maria von Wedemeyer. So that's how the story, the overlapping of Bonhoeffer reading The Passion of Jesus for the last time became to be integrated into this choral drama in which you're juxtaposing his personal life and his love for Maria von Wedemeyer with the story of his own reading The Passion of Christ for the last time. And in a moment, I'm going to ask you to uh, expand on what what you were getting at there. Uh, but before I do that, I'm not going to presume that everybody listening knows what a tenebrae right. service is like. Will you describe it for sure. us? It's a, a very ancient 4th century monastic service that's held on the Thursday before Good Friday. And in the service, they read the Passion of Christ. But in between the sections, they have they they sang the Gregorian chant, mm. and they would put out one candle. There are thirteen candles, and one by one the candles are put out, and the church finally is left in darkness as the single candle is exited from the sanctuary. And so it's a a beautiful, simple, dramatic presentation of the story of the Passion of Christ. And how then can you give us a little bit of a picture? I don't want to be a spoiler here because I really want people to see this for themselves, to experience it. Really, it's not just an observation. It's a, you enter into it. Even if you're watching it on digital media, you, 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 I've done it and, and, and I feel it. But... Um, can you tell us how, give us a little bit of a picture mm -hmm. of how this unfolds mm -hmm. this, with uh, Maria and Dietrich mm -hmm. uh, in this setting? Well, as I read the, the correspondence between Maria von Wedemeyer and Dietrich Bonhoeffer, I began to see that part of his humanity was part that you don't get from his, from his re of reading from all of his books. And so I wanted to explore not only his mission and his, his uh, warning to the world, but also his personal relationships, mm. which gave, hopefully, gave a very humane, human side of his full picture. And so I brought her into it and used some of the correspondence between them. And it just, it, it's a portrait of him on a deeper personal level. And what you see there is actually each of them mm -hmm. penning a letter, 
right. and and they're verbalizing right. what they're writing. Yeah, and Bonhoeffer made friends with his guards. Yes, he did. And so they arranged for Maria von Wedemeyer to visit Bonhoeffer in very separate but together, face to face. And one of the most powerful parts, I think, is that are they're singing together yeah. without touching and then pulled apart. And then the tragedy begins to unfold. Yes. But within that story is the story of Bonhoeffer with his Bible opening it up and reading the Passion of Christ for yes. the last time. Apparently for the last time. Yes. So I took the liberties of combining these two. Now at Union Theological Seminary, where it was first Perform in 2001, the seminarians objected to me of calling it the Passion of Dietrich Bonhoeffer oh. because they said Bonhoeffer would never be identified with the figure of Christ. Oh. And so I had to change it to the story oh. of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Oh, I see. But right after that performance, it went back to the Passion of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, which brings up an answer to your question of what was within me when I began to compose this piece. And I saw that the passion of Bonhoeffer was his going into his own Garden of Gethsemane, mm -hmm. going and being crucified, you know. And that's, in a way, what the message is. Yes. That there is a living necessity to die before we can live again. Mm. And so that's where I I came from, you know, psychologically and spiritually. And there's a poem that I pulled from an, an ancient Li Po poem, Chinese poem, mm. called Sorrow. And when they're doing the, the part of the, um, in the piece it's called Sacrificium, and that is the represent, musical representation of the crucifixion. Mm -hmm. And Maria von Weidemeyer takes her shawl, puts it over her head, goes to stage center, and kneels as this is being sung. And it, at, as soon as it's done, she then sings Sorrow, which is a 12-word poem. My sorrow is like the mountain stream cold, clear, and running on forever. Oh, I want to sit with that for yeah. a pause here. You know, it brings to mind, you know, what Bonhoeffer said about um, knowing Christ and his suffering, that it's impossible to know Christ apart from suffering. Exactly, exactly. And to capture that, yeah. Yeah. just a, a gift yeah. to all of us. Uh, what do you hope people will take away from the experience? My um, efforts were to keep this piece within the normal one-hour church service. But within that, to distill down from all of the research and all of the books and 
and biographies to distill it down so someone who sits there for an hour who has never heard of the name Dietrich Bonhoeffer will walk out knowing who he was as a human being, as a theologian, as a pastor, and be moved by, the, by his warning to us. And what an appropriate medium to convey all of that in. One is because Bonhoeffer himself was a musician and loved music and I think used it powerfully in, in his own personal life, uh, in the, certainly within the family. Right. Um, I'm not aware of him actually ever performing to a only for a family. Yeah, just just for. But he used to go from Union Theological Seminary to the Abyssinian Baptist Church. He sure. And he bought the music and brought it back to the young boys in the slums of Berlin. Yes. And so, and I extracted some of his favorite music from the You're dead. from the from the uh, St. Matthew's Passion. Oh. And that's what they're singing together. Yeah. And that's what he sings at the very end when he's being let out. Someone in Germany, I don't know how scientific the research was, but um, said, you know, in many ways we credit Bonhoeffer with the love of black gospel here in Germany. Exactly. And I, I think they have big festivals and it's, yeah. it's very popular. And, yeah. And in part, they credit him with bringing it over from the United States. I don't know how accurate that is, but I'm happy to give him the credit for that. Uh, Absolutely, yeah. And I know how deeply moved he was by the singing at uh, Abyssinia. Yeah. Uh, he so I picked this. out, I asked the seminarians what would they pick out for, for the piece, and, and this little light of mine was the most mm. obvious choice. <laughs> <laughs> Well, let's just say uh, someone, you know, listening, uh, part of our podcast family, many are pastors. Mm -hmm. They are denominational officials. Uh, they may teach at a seminary or another theological institution. And they're thinking, wow, this is a good idea. Maybe this is a production that our institution or our church or our denomination uh, could sponsor, could actually uh, perform? Is that even possible? Yeah, I'd like to add that um, this production at Cornell University was enormous. It was filmed with the graduate students. That's what I would have seen, right? Right. right. Mm -hmm. But we did it on a much smaller scale. It does not have to be a huge production. Mm -hmm. There were 20 singers and 20 musicians. Okay. And it was uh, it was uh, done to capture Sage Chapel production. It was done in a much smaller church in Cortland, New York. Really? Yeah. Cortland. It, I used to visit Cortland. I a, used to preach in Cortland. Really? It's a very uh, it's an intimate piece. It's mm -hmm. not a grand opera. It's very intimate. So 20 voices, 20 instruments, 20 yeah. musicians, right. uh, and an hour long. Yeah, they did the less, with, they did what they reduced the orchestration really? for the smaller. So it can be done on 
many different scales. So that sounds very doable right. for a school, mm -hmm. for a church. Yeah. It was actually done at Chaminade College Prep School in California, and it was used to open their Performing Arts Center, and it was also part of the last class in the course on the ethics for their graduating really? seniors. And the Monsignor came up afterwards and said, you know, thank you for blessing our Performing Arts Center. So it can be used for many different purposes on many different scales. And how long would you say roughly it would take from decision, you know, recruitment, mm -hmm. rehearsals, mm -hmm. and then all the logistics that go into a production? How long of a project for any given sponsor might it be? I had um, professional singers and professional musicians, and so we only had a week. Really? In, in Sage Chapel. I see. Very little rehearsal. <laughs> but again, it depends on how much the, uh, the choir director can teach the music and <laughs> you know, bring it together. And I can't recall exactly, but uh, does it require uh, memorization on the part of the two principals? Yes. Yeah. Okay, so a little bit of obviously rehearsal. You know, it could be done in concert. It doesn't have uh -huh. to be staged. Uh huh. Yeah. Well, I just have a feeling we convinced some folks yeah. to do this. And if they are, you know, if they proceed that way, how do they find the material? I'd also like to mention on a practical level that the, um, the production cost was provided by a legacy gift that I received from a friend in New York City. I see. And I decided to pass, to pay that forward. Mm -hmm. And so it was, the production was paid for that way. I see. But I also want to mention that there is no copyright on this. Really? There will be no copyright on this. And I will never, ever be taking any money from these productions because it needs to go out there without that attachment. I would say that's very Bonhoeffrian. Yeah. You're keeping with the spirit of yeah. your subject and... Uh, well, and his instruction was for action, you know, and so yes. this, this is what... I even hesitate to call myself a composer because I don't have a huge <laughs> amount that I've written, composed, but this came into me it came to me to do in the, in the late 90s and uh, it's not something that I need to be even recognized for much less paid for so I'm trying to stay as anonymous as possible yeah. well we refuse uh, to make you entirely anonymous only because we want to know you uh, in this community that's forming around Bonhoeffer's legacy and this is such a rich contribution. We're going to pause Matt because we've got some uh, noise in the hallway. Also, um, do you know Sam Van Kulen? No. Okay. Gail uh, Prinsky? That sounds vaguely familiar She's the um, Judisha Culture Boot uh, organization here in Washington that works with 
Jewish programs. Okay, maybe that's the context we've met in. Why do you mention her? Because she came up to Ithaca to see this piece. Oh, she did? Yeah. Oh. oh. Scott, I mean, Sam Van Kuhlen is connected to the National Cathedral in some way. And he told me, you know, they're, they're still trying to repair the earthquake. Um, yes. Yep. So they don't spend a lot on, on exactly. productions, performances. But I also have not met, but I know of Scott Tucker, who was the conductor of the Washington Choral heard the Society. Name. Mm -hmm. He's now left that, but I thought if, you know, if there's any chance that the space is available, right. then there could be an independent coming together of voices and musicians from the outside. I'll, um, I'll, I'll follow that up with you. Because I'm going to leave these with you. This is my letter to... Let me just bring about a formal okay. end and then we'll okay. go to that. Okay, Matt, we're going to resume. So, Hugh, uh, I'm really hoping that we're going to see some mm -hmm. productions mm -hmm. out of this conversation. And uh, if there aren't any folks better equipped to do it than we are here at the Institute, uh, I'm, I'm going to talk some more with you about how we might catalyze a production here in Washington. Uh, and there are a few places I think we both have in mind uh, where that could happen. And, uh, and we have connections here uh, I'm very grateful for. So thank you for spending this time with us, with me here. Thank you for making the arduous journey in. For the in-person, I told you I'm a little rusty because uh, I haven't done the in-person thing since the beginning of the pandemic. For those of you who are listening years later, uh, we're just coming to the, I don't know if it's the end, but at least freedom from uh, the restrictions around uh, the COVID-19 pandemic. And Hugh is, what is my first in-person conversation partner for this podcast. So I thank you for that, Hugh. And uh, words are not adequate to thank you for your contribution through Tenebrae, the passion of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And uh, look in the text around this podcast uh, posting, folks, you'll see live links uh, where you can find out more about Tenebrae. And uh, let us know if you're interested. Uh, we'd like to know that uh, what you're up to, and especially if it brings about a performance of Tenebrae, The Passion of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Hugh, God bless your dedication to this. My pleasure and an honor. Thank you.